If you will, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. And because it has been a couple of weeks since we studied Romans 7 together, I want to read it in your hearing that we might experience the full context for our time together in God's Word this morning. You follow along as I read Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want... But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. We're endeavoring to answer the question in Romans 7, who is the wretched man? And I've heretofore given you an outline of verses 14 to 25 of Romans 7, because that is where we find ourselves. And I've said to you previously, this particular portion of Romans 7, verses 14 to 25, contain three subsections that provide for what we could call three Pauline statements of fact. And he shows us that in three declarative beginnings in those subsections. For instance, verse 14, we know. Verse 18, I know. Verse 21, so I find. And those provide for us what I believe is an excellent outline of the subsections of this text. And so therefore you have three declarations of discernment which the Apostle Paul gives about his own life and which should also be a set of discerning declarations about your own maturing Christian life. What are they? Well, number one, In verses 14 to 17, the Apostle Paul discerningly declares this, The law of God is good. I am very sinful. And we looked at that, didn't we, in detail. Verses 14 to 17. He makes a declarative, discerning statement or statements about the law. And he says the law of God is good. But then he turns around and says, Even though the law is good, and in fact, indeed, because the law is good, I am am therefore very sinful. And then secondly, the Apostle Paul says in verses 18 to 20, no good dwells in my flesh, evil is always present with me. That is his explanation of his own maturing Christian life in verses 18 to 20. And then thirdly, from verses 21 to 25, Paul says, My mind delights in the law of God, but my flesh serves the law of sin. He makes these three declarative statements of fact about his own Christian life and indeed about every other Christian's life. This should be the declaration of, of the maturing process of the Christian life. This is what we all ought to be saying in ever increasingly in ever increasing realities in our minds about our Christian walk. As I mentioned a moment ago, we went through verses 14 to 17, this idea that the law of God 
is good and that I am very sinful. And this morning I want to focus on verses 18, 19, and 20. That is, no good dwells in my flesh, evil is always present with me. Look again at verses 18 to 20. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Bracketed around verses 18 to 20 and of course, throughout these verses is the clear Pauline concept of the tension between the Christian and indwelling sin. Notice verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. And then bracketed with verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Do you notice that he uses that word dwells twice here in both these verses to sum up what is a certain reality in the Christian life, and that certain reality is this. When I survey the whole of my Christian life, while I have the desire to do what is right, while I do want to do good works, I find that there is this evil which is ever and always present within me that taints the truest part of me. That's what he's saying. And yet, don't forget, it is the discernment of these very matters which shows how much Paul had grown in his own Christian life. And it is that very discernment that you and I experience when we look at our Christian lives and say the same things about ourselves. Don't think that Paul is a brand new believer here, that he's infantile in his faith. Think rather that he's looking at his Christian life in a very mature way and he's looking at it and he's saying, I want the law of God in my inner being. I want to obey it. I want to live it out to its fullness. I want to attain perfection. I want to do that which is my ultimate and sincere desire. But I look at my life and I see even about my best works, the evil that is so ever-present within me. That's a mature perspective. That's a perspective that we all need to have in ever-progressive ways. And when someone says that, like Paul does here, do you discern the tension between you and your sin in the Christian life? You know you're on your way to real spiritual maturity when you can more clearly see the tension between your truest Christian desires as a genuine growing believer and the ever-present reality of your own sinfulness which dogs you every step of faith in Jesus Christ. Paul and Verses 18 to 20 teaches us this truth by saying the same thing in three different ways in these three different verses. Here's the first one. 
Look at verse 18b. Look at the latter part of verse 18. He says, For I have the desire to do what is right. See, that's the truest part of Paul's heart. Within the genuine discernment of his own character, he really does want to please God. He really does want to do what is righteously obedient in God's sight. But, but he says, I don't have the ability to perfectly live out that very thing. And that frustrates me to no end. Haven't you had that same kind of experience about your own Christian life? You think things are going well? You're praying more fervently than you have before. Uh, Your Bible reading is fresh and alive. Your service and ministry is at an all-time high. And you believe that in your heart you're progressing in your holiness. You're pleasing God in ways that you never had before. The Holy Spirit is revealing things to you from His Word. You hear the preaching of the Gospel. You hear those songs that are being sung and you rejoice in your your heart in the fullness of life in Christ. And as soon as you're on that spiritual high, that plane of existence that you had not been on before, and then the Holy Spirit reveals your sin to you. And it dogs you. And it's ever present within you. And you become discouraged because you think to yourself, but but I thought I was somewhat past that particular sin. I thought I was getting a handle on it. I thought I was doing what was pleasing in God's sight. And here's the tension. You are. All of that description about your sanctification and about your holiness, it is true of you. It is true of the very heart of your character. You want to do those things. That's not fake. That's not synthetic. That's real. But even though it's real about your sanctification, the struggle with sin is ever real also. And you see in your heart and you see in your life a desire to do what is right. And as that desire increases and as holiness increases as a result, then you become ever more sensitive to your sin. And even though there is less sin there because you're maturing on in the Christian life and that's inevitably what happens, the more you grow in Christ, the less the sin is there. But the less the sin is there, you sense the more heinous that it is. And that's what Paul is saying here. He truly desires that all his ways are clean and pure and spiritually healthy and righteous through and through. But within him, according to verse 18a, look at that. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. What kind of me that is in my flesh? For... I have the desire to do what is right. You see, only a Christian can say that. Uh, But even in the midst of wanting and desiring fervently to do what is right, I seem not to have the ability to carry it all out. Now notice, he's not saying, "I I don't have the ability to carry it out at all. That's not what he's saying. 
What he's saying is, I want the ultimate perfection. I want spiritual maturity to its fullest and to its highest. And when I don't attain that, I look at my life and I say, where is the ability to fully bring it to pass? Why can't I get there? And what he means by that term, my flesh, is not some part of himself that is alien to his body, alien to his mind, uh, somehow some schizophrenic view that it's not really him. No, he says, I'm sinful, yes. That is, I'm sinful in my flesh. He has the desire to see every last part of himself redeemed so completely and totally He wants sin to be gone. He wants sin to be eradicated from his life entirely, including that sin which affects his mind. His thoughts, his attitudes, his actions, his deeds, and even his physical body. Because the curse of sin means that our bodies are progressively breaking down day after day. And it happens, and it happens fast. You know that as soon as you're born, you're dying. You realize that? As soon as you're born, you're dying. I remember about oh, four or five years ago, we went on a mission trip. I took some of my kids. We went to New Mexico, had a wonderful time. And I remember that I didn't shave during that experience. And when I came back, I didn't shave for oh, maybe a couple of months. And you may have remembered that Four or five years ago, this beard was black. And now it's almost completely white. Why? Because within the space of four or five years, my body is breaking down. It is a truth that in our world, even though our inner man could be renewed day by day, our outer man is decaying. Now, please don't say that my beard is decaying. It is white. It is that which is just like that law of entropy, just like that idea of the universe breaking down. The idea of the degeneration of the earth. How could anyone believe in evolution when the truth of the matter is that any sighted person can see and look around them that we're experiencing devolution? Everything is breaking down. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. And even in the midst of our own creation, the created order, things are breaking down. And within our own hearts, even though we have the desire to do what is right, we still live in a sin-encased world. And we need someone to break into that world to redeem us completely and fully and to redeem the earth itself. And the Apostle Paul will go on to say that in Romans 8. Uh, Even the creation itself groans. And there's a desire on the part of creation, not just ourselves as human beings, but on the part of creation itself for the full redemption of the universe. And so even that which affects Our own indwelling sin affects the world by the curse of sin. By the way, do you want to see Paul's heart? 
for himself and those to whom he ministered in this regard? Do you want to see what's in his heart? Do you want to see how he prays for himself and for those around him? Look in your Bibles at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. This is, this is what he prays for himself. This is how a mature Christian prays. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. You see, that's what He's after here in Romans 7. That's what He's saying. That's the goal. That's the desire. I want the God of peace to sanctify me and you Romans and you Thessalonians completely, wholly, Totally, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. See Paul's heart there? He wants for himself and for his flock a completed and a whole sanctification which includes everything about him and them. Desires, in other words, an entire sanctification. A definitive sanctification, uh, a completed holiness at the, coming, at the coming of Christ. And he also knows that it's only at the coming of Christ when that kind of sanctification will truly take place. Until then, when you look at yourself and you look at others and you can see not only in the spiritual depths of their heart and even in their physical bodies, the breaking down because sin is ever present within us. You see your own desire for holiness and you even see the evidence of holiness in others but you don't see it entirely. You don't see it completely and you long for it but the totality of it only comes when Christ transforms you and me into the very image of Himself. That's when it comes. Now it's progressing. It's growing But as it grows, sin is ever present within us. And this is precisely why Paul says here in Romans 7, 18, that nothing good dwells in our sinful flesh. In this current life of ours, and in his current life, when he thought of these things, he was tied to this world in its ever-present sinfulness, which pervades everything and anything that's good and right. And that's why he can say, I want to carry out every good. I want to please God in every respect. I want to be totally and completely honoring to Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, in everything I do, but with my humanness, my flesh, my sinfulness, my indwelling sin, my remaining sin, there remains this principle that mitigates against the pleasing of of God. And it dogs my every step and it makes me realize so constantly how tied I am to the tension of the already and the not yet. I'm already saved, but I need to be saved. And I need to be ultimately saved. There are those three tenses of the Christian life. Past tense in terms of the judicial forensic aspect of my life. I'm a Christian and I will always be a Christian. I will forever be a Christian. But I'm not all the Christian that I need to be. And that's the present tense of our sanctification. Our holiness. That's what God is at work in us to perform. 
by His Holy Spirit and by the Word of God and by the people of God. And yet, even with that, I need an ultimate kind of sanctification. I need to be glorified in Christ. And that's when that total and complete and definitive sanctification will be mine. And the tension will be gone. Looking for the end of the tension? Boy, I am. The tension is so ever-present. You see this kind of struggle in your own life? Some of you might say, no, I really don't. Well, that may mean that you've attached yourself to a church, possibly even this church. You've given money. You've served in some ministry capacity. You've prayed prayers. You've walked an aisle. You've signed a card. But you've really never experienced the tension of which Paul speaks here. In fact, you may have even argued with God about this tension that Paul describes in these verses. You've said, and I've heard people say who've been somehow attached to Christianity, something like this. But no, I'm a good person. I even talked with someone within my own extended family recently who said that very thing. They said, I I do good things. I I try to serve and I try to help my fellow men. I'm quite sure that God isn't going to condemn me for all the little mistakes I've made along the way. He'll no doubt be good to me. He'll not chastise me for the little of the bad in me. And do you realize a person who says something like that really doesn't understand sin? Because sin is not a little bad in me. Sin is pervasive. Sin is surrounding. Sin is in and through us. And the tension of the Christian life is that when God grants you faith and repentance, when your heart has been regenerated and you place your confidence and trust alone in Christ and you begin the journey, uh, the pilgrim's way, when you begin to walk the steps of faith, you begin, as Bunyan's character says and experiences, all kinds of challenges, especially with sin. Especially with sin. The other night I was grieved, although at least on the front end I was interested to hear Joel Osteen on Larry King Live. How many of you saw that broadcast. Yes, several of you did. He's the pastor, of course, of Lakewood Church, Houston, Texas, now the largest Protestant congregation in America with over 16,000 in attendance. Having five services on the weekend, they had so many people, they had to buy out the Houston Rockets old arena, the Compact Center, refurbishing it now for all of these services. He's written a best-selling book, which is continuing to sell top ten of any book list in America. His first appearance on Larry King Live, first opportunity that I, myself, and others would have at hearing what he believes. Hold a Bible up, does the whole congregation at the beginning of their services, if you've seen it on television, and they give a prepared, memorized statement about their allegiance to the Bible their allegiance to obedience to the Bible. And yet listen, as I have copied the transcription of what I myself listened to and so many others, Larry King at one point said this, quote, because we've had ministers on, that is on his broadcast, who said, your record don't count, that is, your record of good works. 
And these ministers, like for instance John MacArthur and others, Al Mohler, saying your record, your good works, that doesn't count ultimately in eternity in terms of your acceptance with God. Larry King said you either believe in Christ or you don't. If you believe in Christ, you are, you are going to heaven. And if you don't, no matter what you've done in your life, you ain't. Now that's a, that's a softball lobbed if I've ever seen one. I mean, boy, an opportunity like that, you just lob the softball out there and all you have to do is just bat it out of the park. That's right, Larry. That's exactly right. You need to entrust your soul to Jesus Christ. There's absolutely nothing that you can do. You can't work your way to heaven. If there's anybody in a false religion, whatever that may, uh, religion may be, everyone except Christianity are involved in the religion of human achievement. They think they do some of it, even for some of those groups that believe that God does most of it. For any of those who don't believe that God does all of it, they're condemned and headed to hell. That's right, Larry. Christianity alone is the religion of divine accomplishment. Only Christ Jesus, who died in our place and for which we entrust our soul, even the faith that we receive is is a gift of God, even the repentance, the turning from sin, is that which our heart doesn't do on its own naturally because of of the depravity of our soul, and God must grant that to us as well. And when He does, it issues forth in our souls a desire to repent and believe, and we do so, and we entrust our souls to a Creator who does what is right. And Christianity is the only religion in the entire universe that promotes a religion of divine accomplishment only. And with that explanation, you know why I'm not on Larry King Live. Because I can never say that in a few minutes in a 30-second soundbite. Here's what Osteen said to that very question. Yeah, I don't know. There's probably a balance between... I believe you have to know Christ, but I think that if you know Christ, if you're a believer in God, you're going to have some good works. I think that it's a cop-out to say I'm a Christian, but I don't ever do anything. Larry King, what if you're Jewish? Picking up on that idea of good works. What about those others who believe themselves to be doing good works? Are they going to be condemned? What if you're Jewish or Muslim? You don't accept Christ at all. There's another softball, just lob it my way. I'll hit it right out of the park. Here's what Osteen said. You know, I'm very careful about saying who would and who wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. Larry King, if you believe you have to believe in Christ, they're wrong, aren't they? I mean, he's leading him right to the trough. Drink it! Osteen, well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. But I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. Which, by the way, nobody disagrees with. Of course God does that. But He says in His Word, what is to be believed and what is not to be believed, and the judgment of those who do not believe it. He says, I I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father, who was the former pastor of the church. I believe he had a heart attack and died, John Osteen. I don't know uh, all about their religion, that is, Hindus, but I know they love God. And I don't know. I've seen their sincerity. So I don't know. I know for me, 
and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. And isn't that just that pluralism of our day? Well, I personally, I believe in Jesus, but if they believe in their God and they love God and they're sincere, then I don't know. Just contradicting the law of non-contradiction. That if something's true, then the opposite of that must be false. See, we want to say, no, no, everything's true. And then in another excerpt, Larry King, uh, speaking about his book and how he wanted to reach out to non-Christians with his book, and so therefore he didn't use the word sinners in the book. He says, you don't call them sinners. Osteen, I don't. King, is that a word you don't use? Osteen, I don't use it. I never thought about it, but I probably don't. But most people already know what they're doing wrong. When I get them to church, I want to tell them that you can change. There can be a difference in your life, so I don't go down the road of condemning. You know what this is? I watched the entire broadcast, and he is the newest version of Robert Schuller. That's, what, that's, what that's what's going on here. You just, you just be positive several times in response to very pertinent and very pointed questions. He would say, I don't know, or here's the way we approach it. We just want to be positive. We just want to encourage people. We, we don't want to deal with this issue of, of saying who's in and who's out and calling people sinners. We, we, we just want to help people. And these were just two of the many troubling questions posed to him. But brothers and sisters, that's certainly not the message of true Christianity. Look at your Bibles in Romans 3.23. I mean, he would have done well if he just had a Bible there or quoted Romans 3.23. Larry, here's the answer to your question. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. And by the way, just before that, he says there is no distinction. That means Jews and non-Jews. And in that context, that was everybody. That all there means all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's your answer. Anybody who falls short of the glory of God, whether they be Jews or Gentiles, are headed for hell. Look at verse 28 of that same chapter. For we hold, this is the answer for you as a Christian, for me as a Christian, we hold that one is justified, that is declared right by God, by faith apart from works of the law. Larry King. Well, what about works? What about the Jew? And by the way, he's Jewish, married to a Mormon. What, what, what do you do? I mean, works, the, the Hindus, those who are Muslims, what do you do? They're doing works. Here's the answer. You want to be right with God? You have to be right with God by faith apart from works of the law. No devout Hindus, like Joel Osteen was referring to, are going to be declared right with God unless they forsake their true, uh, excuse me, they forsake that which is not true and their false religion and place their trust and faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And anyone who's counting on the good works, their good works, even for a small part of their acceptance with God, will ultimately be condemned by a righteous God who will not tolerate boasting about anyone's deeds. In fact, look at verse 27. Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? Answer, it is excluded. It's done away with. When you have the opportunity to speak to millions of people through the Larry King live broadcast, you cannot be ashamed of the gospel. There was even a lady who called in and 
and said, I, I really like you and thank you for this and that, but why are you sidestepping Larry King's questions? And then she quoted John 14:6. Does the Bible not say that Jesus by his own lips said, I am the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through me? And he says, I believe that. And then Larry said, but what about the others? And he said, I'll just let God be the judge. Boy, when you have the opportunity, hit the ball out of the park. Do what is right. That's what Paul is doing here in Romans 3. And when he gets to Romans 7, he's not ashamed of the gospel at all. And in fact, he even says, when I desire the good, even though the desire to do what is right is there, I find that no good dwells in my flesh. I love the gospel, I preach the gospel, and the gospel has so enraptured me, it has so penetrated into the deepest part of my soul that it is exposing every part of me, and when it exposes me, it shows me to be sinful. Not as sinful as I was, but nevertheless in need of daily cleansing, in need of dealing with my sin, my remaining sin, the battling of the forces of darkness. Notice he says the same thing. Secondly, in verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You hear that tension again? Do you know of this tension in your own life? Try as I do. Here's your, here's your autobiography. Try as I do. I want to make every effort to stop sinning altogether, to root it out of my life so completely, so that I could do all the good that I sincerely want to do, but the evil I don't want to do is still rearing its ugly head against my desires, and it prevents me from doing all the good that I want otherwise to accomplish. That's the tension. That's the battle. Is that the kind of battle you have? Is that where you are in your heart? Ernest Kevin, theologian of yesteryear, says it this way. Here is the truly Christian experience. Listen carefully. This is the truly Christian experience. But it is that part of which, through the deceptiveness and the shallowness of our hearts, so we rarely come to know. You see, because of sin's deceptions, and because of the shallowness of our own maturity in the Christian life, we rarely come to know and discern of these things. He says it is quite true, as some have pointed out, that the Holy Spirit is not mentioned by name in this immediate paragraph of the epistle, but His activity is everywhere evident. The situation which the Apostle describes is one which is created by the entry of the life of the Spirit into the soul. And then this very well-articulated statement. The more there is of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus in us, the more will the depths of inbred sin be discovered. You see, the more you yield up control of your life to the present Holy Spirit, the more inbred sin will be discerned by you. These, he says, are the discoveries of which Paul gives an account here. Boy, this is a grand discovery. Have you discovered it? 
See, the more the Holy Spirit points out the worst in me, the more as a true Christian I will both groan at my remaining sin and yet rejoice in its gradual disappearance. The Puritans called it this, a blessed discontent. Why is it blessed? Because there's less sin, because you're growing in Christ. Why is it excruciating? Because even though there's less there, that which remains is repugnant to you. You hate it. You want to deal with it. You want to see progressive sanctification increase. Are you seeing that increase in your life? Do you see the decreasing frequency of sin? Do you delight in the law of God and the inner mind, the inner man? Not as a means of salvation, but as a means to recognize your sin so that you may deal appropriately with it. Listen to J.I. Packer in describing his own view of Romans 7. He writes this, What the law does for the Christian is to give him knowledge of the sin that still remains in him. When he reviews his life by the light of the law, he always finds that he finds and sees that sin is still in him and that he is still to a degree being taken captive by it. The wretchedness of the wretched man thus springs from the discovery of his continuing sinfulness and the knowledge that he cannot hope to be rid of indwelling sin, his troublesome inmate, while he remains in the body. He is painfully conscious that for the present his reach exceeds his grasp. And therefore he longs for the eschatological deliverance through which the tension between will and achievement, purpose and performance, plan and action will be abolished. Isn't that so true? How are you doing this very morning with your troublesome inmate? Can you say with the mature Paul that you're not doing the good things you really want to do because evil is present within you? You say, yes, yes, it's true. Yes, it's true. That's exactly what I perceive. But how do I fight it? How do I deal with it? Well, that's what Paul is going to talk about very specifically in chapter 8. He's going to give us the steps. But the first thing he says is that you must acknowledge this discovery about yourself. That it's present within you. That you are on the path of recognizing it fully and completely. That's the marvelous discernment that you must have in order to deal with it in a further way within your own Christian experience. That's the first place. Discovering it, discerning it. And it's as though Paul didn't believe there was a need to stop there. Look at verse 20 as we close. Look at verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He has a need to say it for a third time in this subsection, basically saying the same thing in a different way. And I want you to acknowledge with me that the Apostle Paul is most emphatically not attempting to absolve responsibility for himself here. He says, it is no longer I who do it. He's not saying, well, I don't know who that guy is. I don't know who that fellow is who's sinning, but it's not me. It's not Paul. That's not what he's saying. He's not absolving responsibility for it. It's not like the old Flip Wilson comedy line, honey, the devil made me do it. Not that. 
Not at all. Can't blame it on honey or the devil. We know it because the devil is outside of us. And as I've said to people who I've counseled with many times, when they talk about sin and temptation, and often when it's clearly their own irresponsible behavior, I'll say, the devil was probably in Phoenix somewhere. He's not around you. You did this one on your own. It's, it's not the concept that we must have that's always blaming the devil as though I don't have responsibility and that Paul is even asserting that here. It is no longer I who do it. No, what he's saying there is that sin is in me and that sin is that entity, almost like it's a person personified as that thing that dogs me, that drags me down. It's not me as though it's the truest part of me, the part that wants to long for God, the part that wants to obey God, the part that wants to say yes to God. It's the sin that dwells in me. It's that personification of sin as though it's always with me. It's mirroring my every step. It's dogging my every path. But don't miss the point of what he says here when he says in verse 20, what I do not want. See, that's a Christian. It's a person who's saying, I don't want to do that. And, and he's not just uh, saying a hope for I don't want. He sincerely and genuinely does not want to sin. Wants to be rid of all sin. Can you not with Paul resonate with the concept that without the presence of indwelling sin, you would obey your heavenly Father with perfection? Well, if that's the case, then you want that very thing to come to pass. You want to be rid of it. And were it not for remaining sin, you would love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, and you say, yes, 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 that's what I want. I want God to work in my life that way so that I can fulfill what Matthew 22 says. I want to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I want to love my neighbor as I love myself. God, bring it to me. Make it pass. Bring it in ever-increasing realities to my life. Now, I know I'm going to see sin for that hideousness that it is, and I know it's going to dog my every step, and Lord, I want to be delivered from that. Don't you know that a guy like that is inevitably going to say, Oh, wretched man that I am. Of course he is. Of course we are. And when you sin, you own up to it. You say, Yes. You seek forgiveness for those you've wronged. You seek to live up to the light of truth that God has given you. And is not this the very tension of the Christian life that Paul is describing right here? Yes. It's an amazing portion of Scripture because we can so relate to it. Or should I ask, do you relate to it? Maybe you're out in our congregation this morning. You say, no, I don't relate to that. It seems to be the reality of my life that I am drawn to sin and I do nothing but sin. That could very well be because you have not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I want you to bow your heads with me. And as you do, I want you to ponder the soul of your very existence. 
Would you pray this kind of prayer? Oh, how we long to be delivered from this present evil age. Is that your prayer request? You say about yourself, Oh, wretched man or woman that I am. You long to depart to be with Christ, knowing that that's far better. But do you also, if God allows you to remain in this world, realize ever so acutely that while you truly desire the day-to-day renewing of your inner man, that you also sense that you are very, very sinful and that you desire that remaining sin be mortally wounded. If you're a Christian, you would recognize, as we all do, that until we go to glory, we must remain within the tension of this Christian life, the already and the not yet. We're already saved. Yet we are being saved. And we yet will be saved. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And thank You, God, that it is through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we will be ultimately delivered from this blessed yet wretched condition. This is our prayer as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.